seated. <clears throat> You're in a study of Paul's letter to the Colossians, considering uh, what it means for Christ to be preeminent in all things, certainly in our view of the world and life itself. And so we come to Colossians chapter 2 this morning. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there with me, I'm going to be starting at verse 1, though I'm going to be preaching from verses 4 through 8 about deceptive and empty philosophy. Um, I'm going to come back next week and pick up that uh, beautiful sentence in the middle from verses 6 and 7 about receiving Christ as Lord, walking in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, that very strong, positive statement. Um, but uh, this morning I'll be preaching from uh, the first and the last part of that as he gives this warning about that which will cheat us and lead us astray. Let's take it back from the beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, where we read, Now I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now I say this, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Well, let's pray. Our Father, once again, we come to this, world's, uh, this word seeking divine wisdom and knowledge and understanding, confessing that in so many ways our minds are the products of our world and our upbringing and that we still have so many things to learn from you. Oh, our Father, we pray that you would renew us and transform us by the renewing of our minds that we may prove what is your good and pleasing and perfect will. May that word now teach us and rebuke us, correct us, and instruct us in righteousness, that we might be fully complete and, and ready for every good work, that we might do it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the uh, word philosophy um, means in uh, its uh, original two parts, the love of wisdom philosophy, and, well, who could find fault with loving wisdom? This very letter to the Colossians is full of very positive references to wisdom. Paul himself, he writes, teaches uh, every man in all wisdom. Uh, chapter 1, Paul prays that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom. We just read in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom, and in the next chapter, chapter 3, Paul says that uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And again, chapter 4, walk in wisdom 
toward those who are outside. I mean, just going from this book of Colossians, it would seem that all of you are called to be philosophers. It would be a sin for you not to love wisdom and be philosophers in that sense of the word, lovers of wisdom. So if philosophy then just means the love of wisdom, surely that's a very, very good thing. But this passage reminds us that not all philosophy is created equal. Some philosophy, although persuasive, is in fact, in his words, empty, deceitful, worldly, the invention of men that can cheat us, certainly not the wisdom that God has revealed to the world in Christ. In fact, what uh, Cicero observed in his day has been repeatedly been confirmed in every age. Cicero wrote, uh, there is nothing so absurd that some philosopher has not already said it. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's an important thing for a philosopher like Cicero to say. Um, pa Paul is warning us in the passage, in these five phrases, uh, he's warning us against what might sound persuasive, but is in fact empty, empty, deceitful, based on human tradition, worldly principle, not according to Christ. Uh, and that will be my outline today, those five things which I'll consider with you in turn. Let me explain what he means, and we'll conclude by considering the dangers that you and I are facing today. First, uh, taking it up in verse 4, he says, Be on guard, beware, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Or some of you have it translated, plausible arguments. Counterfeit money would never pass if it didn't look a lot like the real thing. And so it is in religion. When people fall prey to deception, they think that they found something wonderful, something valuable. It appeals to their natural desires. It, it flows with the currents of the culture. It just seems to make sense. It deceives us. That is to say, it tells us lies, but lies that we obviously believe. Now, when I was a young child, it was drummed into my head not to talk to strangers and certainly never to accept a ride from strangers, no matter how nice they seemed, no matter if they offered you candy. Many children and adults are still abducted every year by those who masquerade as nice people but have very evil intentions. And Paul is doing for the Colossian church what my parents did for me. Watch out for philosophers with candy. No way I am getting in that car of persuasive arguments with you. Now, our calling is to conform. Our calling in the church is to conform men to Christ, not Christ to men. Inevitably, someone comes along wanting to conform Christ to men. In other words, telling us things that we, in fact, want to hear, that in our culture sound very persuasive, in Paul's words, or very plausible. For example, we live in a time when we are supposed to be affirming everyone's beliefs, uh, no matter how contradictory they are. They're all to be affirmed. And to insist on some point of truth seems to be the height of arrogance. Uh, although something may be true for you, perhaps they say, you shouldn't expect that to be true for everyone else. I mean, what is this but the corruption of our minds 
by uh, philosophy and a form of words that sounds good. So I was talking to a well-educated Christian man just two days ago, uh, one who teaches others, and he was telling me how Christ can save anyone, no matter what or who they believe, and that we shouldn't limit Christ. Well, th that sounds very, very broad-minded. That sounds very uh, charitable and persuasive, a very plausible argument in our day. I mean, it would, never, it would never pass for centuries, but in our day, that sounds really good. It's certainly not biblical. Just a few verses back in chapter 1, verse 23, we read Paul saying that uh, we may be saved if indeed we continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved from the hope of the gospel. Well, to say such a thing in our day is not popular. It, it does not go over. It is not plausible or persuasive. The cross itself has never had the most eloquent religious message. It doesn't have the sophistication that our culture wants. It doesn't have what philosophies can offer. In fact, Paul writes elsewhere that the math message of the cross is just downright foolish. It exposes us to ridicule by those who have embraced cool religious ideas. But although the message of the cross doesn't have packaging, it does have power. And that's the bottom line. It uh, doesn't uh, seem cool, but it is the truth. And see to it, he writes here, that no one, nothing moves you from Christ and him crucified, we might add, by persuasive words. So uh, Paul couches it now in military terms as he explains it in verse 5. Though I'm absent from the flesh, I rejoice to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As good soldiers of Christ, I rejoice that, well, you are in good order, you are steadfast, because whether you realize it or not, Christians, you are in a war. There is a spiritual battle raging, and spiritual warfare is the most diff difficult and dangerous kind of all. So be on guard, point one, soldiers of Christ, be on guard against persuasive words. Coming back to his theme in verse 8, Paul warns against empty deceit. Secondly, empty deceit. And speaking of warfare, in his uh, book, The Art of War, uh, Sun Tzu writes, all warfare is based on deception. It's certainly true with spiritual warfare. All warfare is, 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 is based on deception. Deceit is what makes not only spiritual warfare difficult, but all warfare difficult. In, in one of the most famous examples of this, in the War of 1812, the British general Isaac Brock had to lead his small army to capture Fort Detroit, which had almost seven times as many American troops. So uh, Brock got some spare uniforms uh, for an accompanying militia, people he basically rounded up, and uh, he, he gave them to make the Amer American army think that he had twice as many trained redcoats as he in fact did. And then he had the war chief Tecumseh parade some warriors, in fact, the same 
smaller group of warriors over and over and over and over again through a gap in the tree line in front of the fort to give the American soldiers the impression that there were thousands and thousands of uh, Indians who had joined the Redcoats to take the fort. Well, the American commander, William Hull, uh, saw this uh, very impressive demonstration and he was overcome with fear and he surrendered the fort without a fight to a tiny British force of 300 men. Hull was later convicted of cowardice and Brock was knighted for his military genius. Um, all warfare is based on deception. There's a lot of philosophy that takes that same approach. It's, it seems really, really impressive. But in fact, there's nothing to it. The threat at the time seems credible. But Paul warns us that we need to remember all the riches of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. And if your faith is not deeply grounded in the knowledge of Jesus, you will be vulnerable to surrendering your faith for what is, in fact, nothing other than an empty, well-designed lie. Can you imagine how William Hull and the men felt as soon as they found out that they had surrendered their fort to a small British force, that they actually had no hope at all if they had just stood their ground? Well, so it has happened so many times in the history of the church. Um, I read this week Ian Murray's sad story of how Scotland lost her Bible, how the most devout nation on earth became one of the most secular and it was 100 years ago that new biblical criticism had come in from Germany, and people were very confidently proclaiming things like, Moses could not be the author of the first five books of the Bible, and Christ and others were wrong to ascribe it to him, because now we know that the alphabet hadn't even been invented yet. Professor Hermann Schultz, for example, confidently declared in 1898, quote, it was a time prior to all knowledge of writing. That convinced many people. Where did the books of Moses come from then? Well, they said the documentary hypothesis, which now all educated people believe, is that those so-called books of Moses were cobbled together from various times and various sources. And if you look carefully, you can see it all yourself. Look very closely. Well, what can we say to that? You know, in the 1930s, several archaeological digs put a stop to those teachings. William Albright could write in 1938, quote, writing was well known in Palestine and Syria throughout the whole patriarchal age, that is the Middle Bronze Age, 2100 to 1500. No fewer than five scripts, he said, are now known to have been in use. Um, what people very confidently asserted and made fun of people for not knowing was in fact wrong. Scholars had to give up the documentary hypothesis, or JEDP, as some of you might have learned it by the 60s, although it still lingers today in some popular works and even a few textbooks I noticed. The point is, plausible arguments from one generation that heap scorn on Christ are shown to be empty deceit in the next generation. Now, that doesn't stop the arguments from coming. They just change. In every generation, they change. They have no power 
except insofar as people are willing to give up the fort to them. But lies build on each other to form strongholds in our hearts and in our world, and this is the danger of spiritual warfare. Paul writes as much elsewhere, he says, though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds and casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience for Christ. All right. Well, I was interested to find this week that this phrase I have as empty deceit is translated by the New Living Bible as high-sounding nonsense. Well, I don't think it's a literal translation, but I kind of like it. <laughs> it gets the point across. Soldiers of Christ, beware of high-sounding nonsense. Don't give up the fort just because you see the little parade in front of you. Beware of high-sounding nonsense. Third, Paul goes on to warn against things that are according to, he says, the tradition of men. Getting a little more specific here. The tradition of men. Oh, we love tradition. And it doesn't matter how venerable the tradition or how much we love it. A tradition is either from God or it's from men. And the truth is that from the very beginning, not just in the New Testament, way back at the very beginning, of God calling out to himself a people and revealing his will to them, the church from that time has always found itself too ready to embrace man's traditions. Now, there's something in us human beings that just love tradition. We love it so much that we, we often do things without even knowing why we're doing it. Can you tell me why there's a fiddler on the roof? Anyone? Tradition. We have family traditions, we have national traditions, and those things are, are wonderful. But we also have traditions in the church, and here's where we need to be discerning. Some of those traditions are handed down to us from the Lord. Paul writes, I praise you, brethren, that you keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you. There are divine or... Uh, 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 holy traditions from God. But, of course, throughout the whole history of God's people, they have constantly been tempted to give their own traditions a try and add them in. Remember how Jesus and his disciples were, uh, were, were, were uh, uh, rebuked. Uh, why don't you and your disciples uh, uh, keep the tradition of the elders? Why do, you why do you eat bread with unwashed hands? Well, Jesus and his disciples flatly rejected those things, which are still kept to this day, by the way, in the Orthodox Jewish community, right? Um, that supposedly this oral Torah that came from Moses, right, handed down orally. Jesus says, rightly that Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And this is why Reformed worship is what it is today. If we can't find it commanded by God, we, we can't do it. Paul warns in verse 20 
of some of the things in his day. Verse 20 and following, he asks the Colossians, look, why do you subject yourself to these regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. God never commanded those things. These indeed, he says, have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, or the old translation, will worship, false humility, the neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. This is the perpetual struggle. Um, and, I mean, people in churches in our day, we still feel the pull. We just seem too ready to embrace, well, you name the tradition, some holiday, some ritual, some practice, some new form of worship, simply because it became a tradition, perhaps, at some point in the church's past. Well, you know it's very old. You know it's very ancient. You know, the ancient church used to do it this way. That, that carries water with a lot of people. The fact that the people did it back then means that perhaps we should do it now. We, we feel more and more rooted, uh, rootless and, and, and uh, without a foundation. And so when somebody tells us that there's an old tradition, well, we take notice. But, but friends, it doesn't matter whether it's old or new. The entire question is, is it from God or from men? I mean, last year it seemed, not to pick on anything or anybody, but it seemed last year that Lent was just taking over all the evangelical churches in a single year. Uh, a tradition which no doubt is ancient and has an appearance of wisdom, but where is it from? And as soon as you begin letting men determine your religion, where does it end? And as soon as your conscience becomes captive to the traditions of men, it is no longer free to serve Christ according to his will. Now, people these days are more and more going back to the ancient church, the medieval church. They need to go back to Christ. The Lord himself had a very good idea of what he wanted his people to do, and he's told us. Right from the beginning, in the law of Moses, when he first gave us the word, he said over and over, for emphasis, just three times alone in Deuteronomy 12, do not add and do not take away. This is what I have for you. Beware the tradition of men. Fourth, he warns us against worldly principles, or as he puts it here, any philosophy or anything that's, quote, according to the basic principles of the world. Now, I have to explain a difference in translation. If you have the ESV, it translates it elemental spirits. That sounds very different, and that is a newer understanding of the word uh, that uh, came out and had a lot of uh, writing about that and reflection a few years ago. And this word was used later to refer to spiritual beings in astrology and so forth. But I have a very good friend who actually was going to do his, P he originally thought he was going to do his PhD on this word and its implication for biblical studies about these elemental spirits and what that means for, for reading the Bible. And uh, he, was, he was doing his, uh, uh, his uh, proposal for a PhD, and he spent a few months of research. And at the end of that time, he concluded that this new translation is, in fact, incorrect. And at that time, the word was never used to talk about spirits. So, I haven't seen his research. I can't say for sure. 
but I, 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 I do know that the ordinary meaning of this word is not spirit, but element or fundamental component. So I think my translation is as good as any, according to the basic principles of the world. Beware of anything that's according to the basic principles of the world. Now, the, uh, the Greco-Roman world prided itself, as ours does today, on its modernity, on being intellectually sophisticated. It loved its philosophers, its learning, its literary traditions, and it frankly looked down on Christianity as foolishness. I mean, did the Christians really think that Jesus, some amateur Jewish rabbi, executed as a criminal by the Romans? I say, did they really think that Romans will give up Plato and Aristotle for this Jesus? Do the Christians think that Paul and John and Peter's writings can compare to Homer or Virgil or Cicero? I mean, it was inevitable that even at the time of the apostles, there, there might be this, this adapting of Christianity, a new flavor of Christianity that would mix in Greek philosophy and and let's not forget pagan sexuality. And so it was that a blending happened as the philosophies of this world came into the doctrine of Christ. Now, modern people look back on the ethics of the Roman world in horror and are repelled, not only because of the influence of Christianity that's fundamentally altered their worldview, but... Uh, you know, but, but there are parts of the world today, right, right now, untold millions whose culture is much closer to ancient Rome than the modern West, where immorality is accepted, where women are abused and remain chattel. I mean, I, I was talking to a young man on Friday. He was stationed in Somalia, um, and uh, while he was stationed there, uh, a local man in a truck ran over and killed a woman. And he was horrified to learn that nothing was done about it because women have virtually no rights in that society. In fact, uh, almost all Somali girls as young women, over 98% of the young Somali girls have undergone genital mutilation. Now you think, what kind of a crazy culture would approve of cutting people's genitals, uh, destroying their uh, pleasure and function and so forth. Cutting people's genitals. Why, why would any culture do that for any reason? Well, you mean like gender-affirming surgery that our churches in the last year or two have been affirming and endorsing, right? One of the largest churches in the U.S. last year, quote, Resolved that in our 80th General Convention, we call for the Episcopal Church to advocate access to gender-affirming care in all forms, social, medical, or any other. And at all ages, as part of our baptismal call to respect the dignity of every human being. End quote. That's last year. This is the mighty power of a worldview and the danger of trying to base it on any worldly principles other than Christ. You know, you see the struggle. Christ has taught us to be compassionate and care for people, and that is our commitment, to love them and to give them the power of Jesus. And when we do it in Jesus' way, we find His mercy, His help, His healing power. 
But, but when we try to base it on worldly principles and just add Jesus in, the opposite result happens. So such principles of the world are easy to resist when they are out and out worldly. But this hidden danger is that when they get baptized in Christian language and come into our thinking in Christian words, suddenly they become much more attractive and, and we find ourselves we find ourselves mutilating young people, right? Taking away the pleasure and function that, that God had designed in, in the hopes of, what, uh, loving them as Jesus loved them. Well, suddenly, uh, these other views we find have now crept into the church. Beware of worldly pr principles. I, I, I don't mean to pick on that, but it's a particularly egregious and pertinent example to us of how these things can come in. Fifth and finally, and in summary, the apostle says, beware of every philosophy that's not according to Christ. Not according to Christ. That is his bottom line, his fundamental. Or as he puts it in 2.19, not holding fast to the head. Because if you're holding on to Christ, if you have the right view of Christ, you're not going to go far wrong in your thinking. Seeing Christ clearly is what will help us see other worldviews for what they are. Everything does depend upon him and getting him right. Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, he says the Colossian church is not in imminent danger of surrendering the fort to plausible arguments. Like a general inspecting his troops, Paul rejoices to see their good order and the steadfastness of their faith. These military terms that describe a, an army that's ready for the fight. But that good order, that firmness of faith, needs to be carefully maintained. Because in practically every generation, from that one to today, someone will come and say, you know, I have a new understanding of Christ. Is it a greater Christ? No, it's always far less. Or someone comes along and says, you know, I have a new understanding of the gospel. We were wrong. This is what it means. Is it a better gospel than the one we received? That God was in Christ reconciling us to himself, not counting our sins against us? No, it's always, always a far worse gospel and generally telling us that we have to do it all ourselves. Um, probably the most important theologian today, evangelical theologian, is uh, Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, who's frankly written a lot of good stuff. But when he gets on subjects like this, about what justification means and what the gospel means, and about uh, we, 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 find, we find that huge swaths of the church are willing to hear, oh, we've been wrong. Oh, we must do it ourselves. Oh, final justification is based upon us and our deeds. And, and people are following it to their ruin. Take this warning to heart. The utter uselessness of a Christian religion there is nothing greater than Christ. There is no greater gospel than what he's given to us. And Christ is sufficient. By him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or principalities or dominions and powers. All things were created through him and for him. There's nothing greater, he's saying. There's nothing more. Anything you can name might have an appearance of wisdom in the short term, but will rob you leading you further and further from Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures. If you add to Jesus, you're going to just take Jesus away. Beware of any philosophy that's not according to Christ. So, dear friends, 
Here are the five things that the apostle would put before us. Beware of persuasive words that are, in fact, empty deceit, anything according to the tradition of man or worldly principles that is not according to Christ will rob you of him. Beware. If you try to add to Jesus, you'll just take Jesus away. Now, in conclusion, I'd like to bring this teaching up to date. I realize that I've already been uh, naming a bunch of names, uh, saying a bunch of things forthrightly. Why? Uh, because, because, frankly, this is such a practical, pressing, important matter that churches we know, we love, uh, uh, people that we love uh, are vulnerable to these things. And I, I, I don't want to speak in generalities when the dangers are so personal and practical. But I would like to bring this general teaching up to date for our situation, because in every generation, Christians are profoundly influenced by the prevailing Christian worldview. I am, you are, we all are. And that if we want to just stand firm, we must constantly be going against the flow just to maintain our position. And that means that in every generation, there will arise a temptation for the church to accommodate itself to the spirit of the age, right? The great Dutch theologian of a century ago and leader, political leader, polymath, really an amazing guy, Abraham Kuyper, he wrote it, he wrote, he put it this way. He said, heresies arise, arise by a fixed law, like a mirage. They are a necessary deflection of the light of Christianity in the spiritual atmosphere of a given age. And what he's saying is that in every age, the light of Christ is bent by the atmosphere of the world in ways that are entirely predictable, that are, in fact, obvious to every future generation. And that in every generation, there will arise a Christianity that is, in fact, much more acceptable to culture. Or writer, writer Francis Schaeffer said it even more boldly, even more forcefully. He says, you tell me what the world is saying today, I'll tell you what the church is going to be saying in 20 years. This is the danger, that philosophies arise in every generation that promise us that we can remain Christians without bearing the reproach of Christ and rejecting our culture's familiar, fashionable ways of thought. Because these false philosophies, as a rule, are not absurd ideas, although some are, but they are, in general, on the contrary, insidious but powerful forms of falsehood that are gaining strength in the church precisely because they provide you the way to remain Christian while appearing worldly-wise and up-to-date. They are ways of thinking that seem so reasonable to people at a certain place in time. And, and like a fire, they are just gathering strength by the oxygen we breathe. It's just the air around us it seems to be feeding the problem, feeding the fire. And the church is always being tempted to deny or at least mute the faith in ways that commend it to our culture. That's what Kuiper's saying in ways that seem sensible or even laudable to the people of the world, bridging the distance, the, the, the gaping distance that must remain 
between non-Christians and Christians, the antithesis between the world and those who are set apart by the name of Jesus. In every generation, some, like a fixed law, some heresy or philosophy will arise to make our faith less scandalous, less difficult, less demanding, like salt that loses its savior, until you see a mirage and not Christ himself. Now in biblical times, the apostles wrote strongly to deliver the churches from the ancient world's evil ways of thinking and living. Some, for example, were saying, hey, there's no resurrection, or, or Jesus didn't come in the flesh. That seems to us foolish, but that worked extremely well with Greek philosophy. And, and, when, and when using Christian terms, they advanced unbiblical teachings about God, Christ, salvation, the Bible, and the church that commended it to the Greco-Roman mind. But that impulse did not end in the first century. It's at work today in you and in me. If not actually to change the faith, at least to mute it at certain areas. Such false teaching in the church not only destroys the souls of people but also cripples and sometimes renders impotent our whole witness to the world. We think we're commending ourselves to the world, but the fact is, who will speak truth to the world if the foundation and pillar of the truth, the church itself, has lost it? If, if the light is gone, who is going to shine it? How is the world ever going to find the salvation of God if the church no longer herself knows where to find it? This is the dismal history of Christianity throughout the world, throughout the ages, that must be told alongside the grand story of salvation. This is a story that fills the pages of the Bible itself, Old Testament and New Testament. These twin lines that go side by side as the Christian message goes out in power and healing, and as another message comes right behind it, bending and eventually extinguishing the light. And if you ask why churches go bad, why churches lose their way, why great churches that once stood mightily for the gospel of Christ now spout smooth, vapid slogans to largely empty sanctuaries, why such churches can't even interest their own children, why they never witnessed the revolutionary impact of the gospel on human life, the answer is this. In every case, they have made peace with the prevailing cultural worldview. They have weakened or obliterated the antithesis between faith and unbelief, between darkness and light, between God and idols. And this is what we must beware, brothers and sisters. When C.S. Lewis wrote his introduction to the life of Athanasius, he had a great line. He wrote, it is his glory, that is, it is the glory of Athanasius that he did not move with the times, and that it is his reward that he now remains when those times, as all times must do, have moved away. At the, at the time, it was Athanasius against the world, Athanasius contramundum, uh, a, a, a remarkable man who had five exiles by the, by the Roman emperor for his stand for the Trinitarian faith. And yet, he still stands. 
and he was victorious because he was fighting not in his own strength, but in the strength of Christ. And that is the reward, soldiers of Christ, that's being held out to you and to me. Don't give up the fort. Everlasting glory remains for all those who remain in Christ. It was Athanasius' reward that he now remains even when those times have moved away. And dear friends, let us also remain when our times have taken a generation who did not know the Lord away with them. Let's pray. Who is sufficient, O Father, for these things, to reflect the light of Christ into the darkness of this world? O Father, we feel the pull upon us to hide a light under a bushel. We, we feel the winds seeking to blow it out. We thank you that you have shone your light upon us, and we pray that more and more we might be enlightened by Christ and be able to walk with him more faithfully, more fully, more graciously, more boldly, knowing how we ought to answer every man. Forgive us when we have hid our light in so many ways and not glorifying you as God, not living and walking and speaking according to the truth. We pray that you would forgive us for such times that we have not only reflected darkness, but even added to it, we, we look back with shame. Fill us more and more with that true light of Christ, and may that spirit fan into flame that which you have put within us to break forth wherever you have placed us. And we pray that your people would glorify you and be drawn to the true Christ in his way.